Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. These are the words of Peter. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You're probably not familiar with the name Samuel Rutherford, unless you are a Presbyterian history geek. I see no hands. Samuel Rutherford was a 17th century pastor. He was one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, which is the group that created the Westminster Confession, which is our confession of faith. He's probably remembered now uh, most famously for a political treatise that he wrote on uh, constitutionalism, limited government, the rule of law, called Lex Rex, the law is king. But in 1645, Rutherford heard of a lady who had lost her youngest son. He was just 12 years old when he died. What was worse, he died far away from his mother, who had not even had the opportunity, as Rutherford puts it, to close his eyes. He'd never met this woman, Mistress Taylor was her name, but he knew her by reputation because her older sons were co-laborers in the ministry with him. And so he knew her reputation of faith, and he made bold on hearing of the death of her son to write a letter to her, attempting to comfort her. Rutherford could sympathize with her in this situation because he was 45 years old, and already both of his children had died before him. These are the words that he wrote to her. I won't read the entire letter, but just an excerpt. And seeking to comfort her in, in what seems to us would have been an inconsolable grief. He says, I know grace roots not out the afflictions of a mother, but puts them on his wheel who makes all things new, that they may be refined. Therefore, sorrow for a dead child is allowed to you though by measure an ounce weights. The redeemed of the Lord have not a dominion or lordship over their sorrow and other affections to lavish out Christ's goods at their pleasure. For ye are not your own, but bought with a price. And your sorrow is not your own, nor hath he redeemed you by halves. And therefore ye are not to make Christ's cross no cross. He commands you to weep. And that princely one who took up to heaven with him a man's heart to be a compassionate high priest became your fellow and companion on earth by weeping for the dead. And therefore ye are to love that cross because it was once on Christ's shoulders before you so that by his own practice he hath overgilded and covered your cross with the mediator's luster. The cup you drink was at the lip of sweet Jesus, and he drank of it 
and so it hath a smell of his breath. And I conceive ye love it not the worse, that it is thus sugared. Therefore drink and believe the resurrection of your son's body. Sometimes because of the resurrection, because of our faith in life everlasting, in times of grief and mourning, we feel it is somehow inappropriate or unchristian to show our sorrow. But as Rutherford says, not only is it not unchristian, but it is commanded by Christ. That Christ sets an example for us. At the death of Lazarus, the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus weeps. And in doing that, He shows us it is right to grieve. It's right to grieve. What's wrong is not to grieve. What's wrong is to despair as if there were no hope. There are two things as you hear Rutherford's letter of comfort that I hope emerge. The way that he comforts this grieving mother, the things that he tells her are these. First, he tries to assure her that in our present suffering, it is a comfort to realize that Jesus preceded us. That the cross you carry was carried first by Jesus. That the cup you drink from was drunk from first by Jesus and is scented with his breath, which ought to be a comfort to us. But he also says that in our hope of resurrection, it is an assurance to know that Jesus preceded us there as well. That yes, it's true that he went before us in suffering, but he also went before us in resurrection, in life, and in hope. And in those facts, the Christian can find comfort even when grieving, even in sorrow. We celebrate the resurrection, and when we do this, if we stop to think about what it is we celebrate, we celebrate something that, that is implausible to the point of impossibility. We're literally celebrating the idea that after you die, you could be raised again. Which may be a pious and churchly thing to say here, but we don't usually live as if we believe such a thing were possible. Yet it is this that we celebrate, the resurrection, life after death, seeing in Jesus' resurrection a promise that those who are in him will also be raised. The fact is, there is no gospel without resurrection. When I teach at Worldview Academy, I often ask the students there what they think the gospel is. And typically, they'll say something like this. The good news of Jesus Christ is that because Jesus died on the cross, if you believe in him, when you die, your spirit will leave your body and will go to live forever in heaven. And I always say, no, that's wrong. Your spirit will not go forever to live in heaven because you will be resurrected. Spirit and body reunited. That's the Christian hope. Resurrection. There is no gospel without resurrection. When the, the New Testament authors preach the gospel, the goal, the end point, is not to be disembodied forever as spirits on a cloud. The end point they look forward to is to be bodily resurrected. To live again as we were meant to live as human beings. And listen to Peter 
This is in Acts chapter 4. Dave actually quoted this in, in his prayer earlier. In Acts chapter 4, Peter, after healing a crippled man, gets in trouble with the elders of Israel. The same way that Jesus, when he did good deeds, was always challenged, Peter finds the same thing is true. They challenge him. They bring him to court, as it were, to answer for himself for having had the audacity to heal this man. And these are the words that Peter speaks to them. He says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When Peter preaches the gospel, the crucifixion is essential. But the resurrection is as well. The Jesus you crucified, God raised again. God made alive, brought him back from the dead. The grave could not hold him. Could not hold him. When we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, we proclaim his resurrection. We proclaim his resurrection. When it comes to Jesus, you might say that the crucifixion speaks the final word as far as men are concerned. The last thing men have to say about Jesus is crucify him. The resurrection speaks God's final word on Jesus. And that word is life. Is life. The resurrection was Christ's victory. We talk about the work that Jesus accomplished. The work that he accomplished was completed at the resurrection. Because it was the resurrection that showed his victory over death. His victory over death. The resurrection marks the beginning of Christ's exaltation. It endured a great humiliation, birth, suffering, and death. But at the resurrection, all of that changes. And, and he receives a name that is greater than every name. His name is glorified and magnified at the resurrection. His greatness is proclaimed. The resurrection gives Christians the hope of everlasting life. Not that we'll never die, but that when we die, we will be raised again. That that death is not the final word spoken for us. Resurrection also changes the way that Christians view suffering and death. It gives us a different way of seeing those things. The resurrection answers death with life. It answers death with life. If we look at our text in 1 Peter 3, it's a simple text where Peter encompasses, packs in some very big ideas into a small space. Small space, less than a sentence. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
But as we look closer at these phrases, at, at the ideas that are packed into them, we begin to see the depth of what Peter is saying. Christ also suffered once for sins. When we think about our own suffering, when we think about our own death, the death of those we love, we should see those things in the context of Christ's suffering and Christ's death who went before us. There's a sense in which we ought not to reflect on our pain without thinking of his. That all that we endure, that all that we suffer, connects us more deeply with what he has endured and with what he suffered. Peter says he suffered once for sins. Christ's death was a once and for all sacrifice. There is no need, in other words, for Christ to offer himself up again. There is no need for his work to be supplemented by any other sacrifice or any other work. He did it once and for all. He suffered once for sins and nothing else needs to be done. All of it was complete when he did that work on the cross. Nothing ever needs to be added to that work. Peter also says that that death had a purpose. There was a reason why Christ died. It was for sins. Christ suffered once for sins. He suffered and died for our sin. His death, in other words, was an act of atonement. It wasn't just a legal injustice. It wasn't just the execution of an unpopular religious leader. That death actually made atonement for sin. Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous, of course, is Christ. The unrighteous, that would be us. The death that Christ died was the death of of a perfect man. He was fully human and fully divine. He was perfect. His obedience was perfect. All of the, the obligations, the demands that the law places on us. When you go back to your Old Testament and you look at all of those responsibilities, the things that we've broken, fallen so far short of, Jesus fulfilled all those things through his obedience. He was righteous. He was truly righteous. And he died in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, the atonement that was made was substitutionary in character. It was Jesus dying on our behalf, not on his own behalf, not for his own sins, but for ours. The substitution took place. And what that means is, if you believe in Jesus, it's not because you're good. If you are in Jesus, it's not because you, morally speaking, are a better sort of person. It's not because you are more deserving that God looked down on you and saw a little something that caught his eye and decided, for you, I will make atonements. Not for those guys, but for you, special as you are, of course. How could I not? Nothing like that. There's nothing in us, in other words, that has contributed. We are the unrighteous. We haven't added anything, contributed anything 
to our own salvation. When we come to the table of Jesus Christ, we bring nothing to it. We add nothing. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That He might bring us to God. This is actually the whole point of what Jesus does. The whole point of His saving work is to bring us to God. When Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 5 about his ministry, this is the passage where he speaks of of Christians as ambassadors on behalf of Christ. When he describes what the work of salvation is all about, he says that God was in Christ reconciling us to Himself. That this was the point of it all, to make peace. It wasn't that Jesus would take like the angry God and the unrighteous people and convince them to, to make peace. Right? God was intentionally making peace in Christ with the unrighteous. This was a deliberate act of the triune God. This reconciliation. And this is why when we talk about Jesus, we talk about Him as the mediator. He's the mediator between God and the church. In Rutherford's letter, he described that, that mediating work in terms of the cross when he said to Mistress Taylor that, that Jesus had over-gilded, over-gilded his cross. Taken that, that rough-hewn cross on which he was crucified and covered it with gold through his obedience. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And as I said, Jesus was fully human, and the death that He died was a fully human death. He wasn't somehow experiencing death light or some sort of in-between state. He was truly dead. He died a death like any other except that he didn't stay dead. The grave did not hold him. Jesus died. He was put to death in the flesh, but God brought Jesus back from the dead. As first fruits, Paul says. First fruits, a guarantee to show us God's plan for us, how it's meant to work. And when you see Peter's words here, when he says, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You have to remember that that Peter's not using this word in the Spirit the way that we use language like that. Um, So the way we use it would be something like, uh, you've got a lot of furniture, heavy furniture that you need to move, and you're asking for help, and I say to you, (laughs) I'll be there in spirit. Yeah, that means you won't be there. Right? It means you sympathize, but you can't be bothered to be actually present. When, when, when Peter says that Christ is made alive in spirit, this is not what he's talking about. Like when we hear the word spirit, we tend to think, you know, immaterial, not really there, sort of otherworldly, that sort of thing. To say that something is spiritual as opposed to physical suggests it is less real. Because the things that are concrete are the real things and spiritual things because we cannot perceive them with our senses seem to be less real to us, but not to Peter, not to Christ. 
Christ was made alive in the Spirit. But when he says these words, he's referring to Jesus after the resurrection. He's using the same kind of language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about resurrected bodies as spiritual bodies. Not, Not amorphous spiritual masses or clouds, but bodies. Spirit body. We tend to to divide these things up and somehow after the resurrection they're united in a way that they go together. Christ in the incarnation didn't take on human flesh and then slough it off at the ascension. He remains embodied now, seated at the right hand of the Father with a spiritual body made alive but better than he was before. As we will be made alive, but better. Spiritual doesn't mean disembodied so much as it means and suggests maybe even like more real, more present. The resurrection changes the way we see suffering and death. It's essential to our understanding of the gospel. It gives the answer of life to death, but also changes the way we see suffering and death in this life, but not in a trite, sentimental way. Not in a way that denies the reality of suffering and the pain of death, but rather one that that embraces it, but sees it in a different context, as part of a different story and a different plan. There's a section of Samuel Rutherford's letter that jumps out at me, perhaps because It's the kind of thing I cannot imagine myself saying to a grieving mother in this situation. And yet he says it, and I read it, and I think he's right about this. But to see things as he says we ought to see them seems so challenging. So challenging. One of the tragedies of of the death of Mistress Taylor's son was, of course, that he was so young. He was 12 years old. Had his whole life ahead of him. His older brothers had gone on into service to God in various ways, and that had been the hope for him as well, that he would follow in their footsteps. And instead, at at the age of 12, he dies. He's taken away. And all of that promise is left unfulfilled. All that he might have done, all the good that he might have done, is cut off. And and it seems pointless. It seems uh, tragic. It's easy for us sometimes uh, if death doesn't come too close to us, or, or it seems like fitting, you know, it's someone who's been sick a long time, and, and death can come as a kind of release, we can be philosophical about situations like that, but we struggle with death that doesn't seem fitting. We struggle especially with, with a death like this. But this is what Rutherford says about this boy. He says he has changed service houses, but has not changed services or master. What he could have done in this lower house, he is now upon that same service in the higher house, and it is all one. It is the same service and the same master, only there is a change of condition. It is all one, he says. Death and life. Death and life. The life of promise that could have been fulfilled and the death that cuts it off, it is all one, he says. There's been no change in service. 
the master he served in this life, this lower house, he still serves in a higher one. The work he might have done here, he continues to do there. The same service, the same master, it's only a change of condition. Just a change of condition. It is all one. That seems like such a, an inconceivable way of, of, of speaking of death. To imagine going to, to a person suffering as she was and saying, it is all one. It is all one. This is just a change of condition. And yet, if you hear an echo in those words, that echo that you're hearing is from the words of Paul. When Paul contemplates his own death, right, he says in Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You can only speak this way about death when you know that death is not the end. When you know that the Lord who rules over life on this earth rules over the life to come. Only then can you look at these hardships in these, this way. And only then can you see it. Death is only a change of condition. It cannot speak the final word for us. Which should encourage us in our suffering and our sorrow. Give us a way of seeing not only the way that our suffering and death draws us closer to Christ who suffered and died before us, but also that it can give us a means of reflecting on the hope that we have in Christ. Samuel Rutherford was a 17th century pastor, as I mentioned, so uh, I don't want to leave the 17th century yet. I want to share with you a poem by George Herbert, who was a 17th century metaphysical poet. I think we've heard from him in the past, but um, this is called The Dawning. This is Herbert writing a poem of comfort those trapped in sorrow. He says, Awake, sad heart, whom sorrow ever drowns. Take up thine eyes, which feed on earth. Unfold thy forehead, gathered into frowns. Thy Savior comes, and with him mirth. Awake, awake, and with a thankful heart his comforts take. Thou dost still lament and pine and cry and feel his death, but not his victory. Arise, sad heart. If thou dost not withstand Christ's resurrection, thine may be. Do not by hanging down break from the hand, which as it riseth, raiseth thee. Arise, arise, and with his burial linen dry thine eyes. Christ left his grave clothes that we might, when grief draws tears or blood, not want a handkerchief. It's good to feel Christ's death. There's a way of thinking that says one of the the challenges we have as modern day Christians is that we're not in touch enough with the cross, that we move past it too easily. We embrace grace so easily that we forget our need for it. We forget that we were sinners. 
We shouldn't be people who don't feel Christ's death. But at the same time, we shouldn't only feel his death. Herbert says, feel his death, but not his victory. No. Feel his death, but feel his victory too. Because the death without the victory leaves the story half told. It's not enough to say Jesus died for our sin. It's not enough. It's true, but it's not enough. Jesus died for our sins so we might live. So that we might have life. Jesus wept at death. When he went to the grave of Lazarus, he wept for Lazarus. Even though he was about to raise him from the dead, he wept, he grieved for the death of his friend. And when Lazarus' sister Mary berated Jesus, she criticized him for not getting there soon enough. These are the words that he spoke to her. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.